Hello and welcome to Happy Hour on the Fringe. Fringe Arts is Philadelphia's premier presenter of contemporary performing arts. My name is Tanara and I am the Community Engagement Manager at Fringe Arts. I invite you to pour one up and enjoy our conversations with some of the most imaginative people on this plane of existence. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation about the themes and questions in our upcoming high-pressure fire service presentation, Legal Tender, by Anti-Gravity Performance Project. For our HipFizz episodes, we like to connect our artists to community members and advocates who are thinking about the same questions the artists explore in their HipFizz pieces. Today's episode features a conversation between Legal Tender lead artist Kyle DeCuyan, executive director of the Poetry Project, and Vanessa Maria Graber, the WPPM radio station manager at PhillyCam, Philadelphia's Community Access Media Center. Vanessa is an organizer, social justice advocate, and media producer from Philadelphia. She has worked in the field of radio for the last 19 years at eight radio stations as a bilingual producer, news reporter, editor, and promoter. Listen to this fascinating and urgent conversation about media justice and literacy between two brilliant practitioners. And don't forget to check out Legal Tender at Fringe Arts, April 16th through 18th. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Kyle. I'm really glad to be talking with you today. Likewise, it's my pleasure to be here. Maybe as a place to just sort of frame everything. I'm really excited about this performance that I'm working on that will happen at Fringe Arts in April that's sort of focused on the relationship between personal information, media, and news content that we produce and receive and how that sort of shapes our understanding of different different work in our communities around us, whether that relates to labor or borders or different kinds of activism. And I'm really excited to be talking with you today because I come at issues of media justice from an artistic practice, and I feel really grateful to be talking with someone who's coming at this from more of an activist and advocacy practice. So so thanks for making the time, and I'm excited to talk more about this with you. Yeah, no, I'm excited to talk to you because it's um, often that we are in our bubbles, silo, doing our work, and it's always great to share and understand the different ways that people approach this through policy work, through organizing, and in your case, through the arts. Yeah, and I think that people who aren't as involved in media justice work as either of us might not quickly understand or fully understand what that work encompasses. So I'm hoping that at some point in this conversation, we might each be able to say a little bit about what that means and looks like uh, for each of us. And I was thinking that as a place, as a kind of entry point for us, maybe we could each say a little bit about how we got connected to media work in the first place and how that drew us even more deeply into specifically advocacy-focused work around media. So I've always been super glued to television. I was born in the 80s. And uh, like many people, my, my parents watched a lot of TV news and read the newspaper and listened to the radio. So it was always a part of uh, my world. There's several people that really inspired me. Um, people like Lisa Thomas-Laurie, who was a, a local newscaster and Christiane Amanpour, who was a foreign correspondent, and just the way that they told stories, and because they were women, and especially women of color, that they represented people that weren't normally shown on mainstream media. 
I started in high school at my TV news station, CDTV, and read the news to my fellow students. It was a pretty dorky thing to do, but I thought it was really cool. Um, Not many schools had TV stations um, there, so I was fortunate to be at a high school where we could learn media and participate. So I was 13 years old, and I engage in other youth media programs over the summer. And so I always knew I wanted to go into media. When I went to college, I joined my college radio station, and I really liked the relaxed nature of radio, where you didn't have to worry so much about what you look like, as long as you were playing good music and sounding good. And there's sort of a mysteriousness about radio broadcasters that I really like. You could be kind of anonymous, even though you were a voice on the radio. In the year before... I started putting together this performance piece. I was working in a role that had me traveling around to different communities and sort of convening both media consumers and media producers. And something that I heard really frequently was what you're mentioning about radio, that um, the, the dimension of representation is really different because we're not seeing, we're not seeing who's speaking, but that doesn't, mean that we don't still get to have a sense of character of whoever's um, delivering particular news or media. I'd love to know when you started to feel sort of tuned into issues of representation in media. Was that something that you felt early on watching, watching women of color on television? Or was it something that you maybe felt more and more conscious of once you started working on this in college? I don't think I was as aware because in Philadelphia, where I'm from, you know, there's a lot of uh, Latinx media and I consumed a lot of Spanish language media as a kid uh, watching Mundo and Univision. And it wasn't until I went to college in rural Western Pennsylvania that I found myself being one of the few uh, Latina people, not only at my university, but definitely in media. And so... For that reason, you know, myself and a friend started the first ever Spanish language radio show because there was a growing Mexican population in the area. And so we thought, you know, there's literally no resources for them. Let's just have a music show and do some international news and at least carve out a little space on the airwaves where people can tune in every week so that there would be something that they could connect to. Around 2002 and 2003, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were, you know, beginning. And I don't think that the mainstream media was circulating information that was accurate. And in fact, many people believed a lot of myths and misinformation about the wars. And with respect to the Muslim community, it was very obvious that they were being demonized and not represented And also people on the ground in the Middle East, their voices weren't being heard. And that really affected me. And I decided to, you know, get involved in anti-war organizing. And as I progressed through my activism, I realized the huge role that media plays in all of that. And um, it was around that time that I discovered the independent media movement and the media reform movement. Um, where people were sort of talking about these issues of representation, diversity, alternative media, different kinds of narratives. 
and how do we actually present the truth um, to the public? And so, again, it was like kind of this time where I was a student, I was an activist, and I, I had this began this journey of, of understanding how our stories, how the way we present information can have these global impacts. And it sort of took me out of this like local bubble that I had and into more of a global movement that not only advocated for peace, but advocate it for, you know, representation and the ability to to tell our own stories correctly. I would love to know more about what inside of media coverage around the war sort of raised your consciousness here, because I think a reason that I feel really passionate about media advocacy is because it's so important to have information. It's so important to have vetted information in order to participate in civic life, to advocate for a different change that we believe in. And at the same time, I think most of us grow up with the conditioned expectation that what we hear and see in the news and in the media is factual. And so I, I'm always really eager to know what and how brings people to the recognition that, you know, media has all kinds of bias and incompletion and misrepresentation wrapped up inside of it. And that's where I feel really important work, like you're describing around the independent media movement. That's where I think a lot of really necessary work needs to be happening, especially right now. But I'd love to know when you were absorbing news content in 2002, 2003, 2004, what were you observing that sort of started to make you realize that we could be addressing media a little more critically and thinking with a little more of a critical perspective about how it gets made and what are all of the consequences of the ways that it gets made? So I did three study abroads when I was in college and in grad school. So during September 11th, I was actually in the Virgin Islands um, on St. Thomas studying Caribbean journalism at the University of the Virgin Islands. And that was sort of like the first moment where I realized that there's like many different perspectives on U.S. imperialism and war And we were definitely in the minority, you know, there was a lot of anti-American sentiment, you know, because islands like the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico are are colonized by the U.S. And so the coverage and just the narrative around war was really different. And it's probably the first time I was really exposed to that because, you know, I had been in my own bubble in Philadelphia and in Western PA. I also had done a study abroad in Costa Rica, where again, like the narrative of foreign policy and capitalism is really different than what I had learned about. And so in talking to people and traveling around the country, there's just really a, a diversity of opinions and perceptions about the U.S.'s role in other countries. So I would say it wasn't any one moment, but sort of a journey I began to go on as I as I began to travel. And then I also um, did a study abroad in, in Austria and in Vienna, Austria, where many people scolded me for being an American and for voting for Bush and for supporting the war. And I said, like, I did I didn't vote for Bush and I don't support the war. Like, why do you why do you think that? And they had explained to me that in their media, that they had viewed Americans this way, that that's the story that was being told. 
so I had tried to describe to them the polarized nature of our country and that there's actually, you know, a, a big anti-war movement. And so it was clear to me that their perceptions also were, were being shaped by media, right? Because they had never been to the U.S. And it was only this dialogue, you know, talking to people, having an exchange that we were better able to understand each other. And so again, like as I, I traveled um, throughout Europe, this kept happening again. People asked me very interesting questions about being American, being part of the United States and this issue of, of war. And so again, you know, it, it sort of really opened my eyes up to, wow, you know, like in the United States, if, if we don't travel to other places, our only experience with a place, for example, is through media. And I remember to Detroit for the first time and thinking like Detroit's like totally bombed out you know like I remember watching eight mile with Eminem and I just kind of thought like all of Detroit was like that and when I went and I saw that it's actually on the waterfront and there's like beautiful parks and a nice downtown area and some really beautiful urban farms like I was like this is this is not what I thought it was. And so again, it was another moment where I was like, again, my perceptions were shaped by media, like by like film, by these things that I had been exposed to. As you continue to travel and see things for yourself and meet people and, and find out the real story, you begin to understand that, you know, you have a lot of unlearning to do and that we have a lot of personal biases that we come into um, places that we have no real experience with. And so all of that culminated in like wanting to be part of a solution and trying to address this and figure out ways that we can have alternative narratives and more representation. And so around that time is when I started to get involved with media justice and, and media reform. National media is so inclined to bring different kinds of bias into reporting, whether that's national media reporting on other national experience, like what you're describing with sort of Austrian media presentation of limited Austrian media presentation of what the U.S. experiences. And, and then I think there are also limitations around the ways that national media, national mainstream media presents different local experience, like what you're describing with Detroit. And that's part of why I think local media is so important because it's really essential for people who are in specific communities to also have the resources and the platforms and the opportunities to be reporting information from within those communities. Already you're describing how important travel is and just passing through different places and recognizing that we live in different spheres of media. Even when you were talking about going from growing up in Philadelphia, where there was an abundance of Latinx media, and then going to Western Pennsylvania, where you were encountering people who hadn't had that in their household before, and then describing what news coverage looked like in different, in different nations where you, you were doing study abroad. That's the ways that these little media spheres become enclosed bubbles and the ways that we fall into those bubbles unconsciously is something that I feel really attentive to and concerned about, um, concerned about with passion. And I would love to know how you're thinking about that today. Like when you think about the ways that media bubbles exist today, how does that feel different from 
you know, like the Iraq war era, I mean, the early Iraq war era, with all the ways that we participate in social media, how are media spheres becoming even more narrow? And at the same time, how, how are sort of our social media and online lives making information exchange open up in new ways that it hadn't before? Yeah, so it's almost like this like paradox, right, where because of more internet access and social media and, and platforms like YouTube and smartphones and, and WhatsApp, you know, we're more interconnected than ever. Um, information is more accessible than ever. And it has really democratized information and media, which is which is great, right? Like we're able to be part of the media. Like anybody can be a citizen journalist or community media journalist or a blogger or have a YouTube channel and, 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 you know, tell their story and people are making movies on their iPhones, which I think is really rad. And um, now we have all these community radio stations all over the country. So there's definitely been huge steps made in terms of access. At the same time, people can still be very vulnerable to disinformation and quote unquote fake news and and memes. You know, we often joke like the real war is the meme war, right? Because people share memes and believe memes like like so much more so than they would necessarily like share a news article. And so it's even though we're more interconnected and more informed, there's still like so much noise and propaganda and disinformation. And and we're seeing like, you know, the the proliferation of like white supremacist platforms and and hate speech and trolling. And so along with all of that access comes all of those negative things as well. So like the work, the activism, it like never stops. Like we're still, you know, working and people might say like, oh, but you started all those radio stations. Like, what are you working on now? And it's like, well, you know, that just because we now have maybe a platform doesn't mean that we are stopping the work because the reality is there's still a lot of communities that don't have access. There's still censorship. There's still a corporate media narrative that supports the status quo and doesn't represent everybody. And so we still have to continue fighting for more access to communication and for, again, you know, that equity in media, which is making laws and policies and that make it accessible to all, but also holding media journalists, creators of content accountable as well. And that's just not limited to news. We still have a film industry that excludes women and people of color. We still have a a music industry that's owned by just a handful of record labels. We still have books, you know, trying to tell Latinx stories by white people that are being promoted into the mainstream. So there's still a lot of work to do even though we have a lot of access now. I hear and feel so tuned into so much of what you're saying here. I do think that the proliferation of fraudulent news is really alarming. As part of the press freedom organization that I was working with before, we had done a study on the extent of fraudulent news and in collaboration with Stanford found that during the 2016 election, in an analysis of just the news content that was shared over Facebook. So this is one specific social media platform. The news content shared within the U.S. over Facebook during the 2016 election 
as part of the study came out from Penn America and Stanford, we found that more, more articles that were provably false or fraudulent, more of those articles were shared than articles that had acceptable vetting standards. I would say I've always been kind of tuned into media, but, but it was really the 2016 election that started getting me thinking about the extent to which we're really hanging in the balance around the integrity of information. And so I feel enormously concerned that we have vast communities and networks who are forming alternative spheres of, of media and information. And, and I feel that an essential counter to this is local media and empowering local media to, to have the resources that they need to report and more deeply understand and more deeply respond to the information needs of their communities. And I would love to, to hear from you about like beyond increasing access, which I agree we've done a lot of admirable work around, when you think about the ways that communities can be supportive of media advocacy and specifically advocacy for local media, like what would you want people to know or feel to be more deeply connected and involved and supportive of their local media environment? Well, I think first and foremost, as as media makers, um, as advocates, as a member of the community, we need to be more engaged and connected to our communities. Can't be preaching these messages from the internet or from the halls of Congress. We have to you know, really focus on building strong relationships and getting connected to people who have influence in various communities. And that means aligning with nonprofits and community leaders and artists, right? Artists play a huge role in in, in all of this. And I think that the more we are engaged, like in a like human way, not in a virtual way, the more power that we, we can build on the ground. And I think that that kind of allows for these very real conversations to be had. Like you have people canvassing now for candidates that have probably never been to these communities who are not maybe of the same demographic, you know, trying to convince them to vote for a certain candidate. And statistically, that has some sort of efficacy, right? But what's probably more effective is people from that community speaking to their neighbors and their family and friends and having conversations with them about their values and what the needs of the community are and which candidate might best serve those needs. As media, I see a lot of journalists, you know, even like exploit communities and then, you know, they want them to be engaged and they want them to consume. And what I've learned through community organizing is that you can't get people to support what you're doing if you're not in solidarity with what they're doing. So that means like paying attention to other movements, showing up for the community when the community needs people, listening and being present when it means that you're not getting anything out of it. And being somebody who's just civically engaged, like you have to be a good citizen yourself in your neighborhood if you want people to be engaged with you and with what you're doing. I love being part of community media because this is really first and foremost of like everything that we do. It's finding ways to be in and of the community, understand what people's needs are, find out what they're doing, supporting their events, 
and making things free and accessible, right? I think there's sort of this ethos that we have about like understanding that not everybody has the means to pay for things all the time. And so the way that we've been able to build a movement is by being like, like I said, in, in solidarity with other movements and having this clear line of communication, having people on the ground. And then when you need something, when the time comes, you already have like a mobilized, engaged people power to to be able to implement the thing that you want. So when it comes time to advocating things like public access television, net neutrality, funding for public media, you can't just snap your fingers and expect people to support those things if you haven't been visible in their communities and be like building relationships with the people that matter. And so I think that's sort of the way that I approach things in terms of like getting people to do the thing that I want, right? It happens over a long period of time and it takes a lot of hours of of participation. It can't just be about your movement and like your issue. Like all the issues are intersectional. And I think again, like then there's this exchange, right? So when there's other calls to action for other things, we must also be present and be ready to support. I'm remembering from what you're you're saying here, I'm remembering this experience I had about a year and a half ago or so of being in Southern Ohio, and we had done two community convenings with journalists in, in Southern Ohio and Northern Kentucky who were writing about the opioid epidemic. And we had one convening that was really clearly a predominantly white audience, and we had one convening that was really predominantly a Black audience. And there was a lot of um, frustration from the Black community in this, in, in this meeting um, about the ways that they felt journalists, mostly white journalists working for the main Ohio publication, ways that they felt these journalists had really neglected the particular dimensions of the opioid epidemic for the Black community and the ways that you know, historically, the Black community had been totally differently villainized around substance abuse and addiction issues, which are health issues. There's a lot of frustration in this meeting, and the response from the journalists was, there are opportunities for you to become information providers to local journalists. We should be thinking about how you can situate yourselves as experts, people who have really valuable, necessary information to share with your local journalists. And I remember one person in the audience saying, what if no one believes me? And what if I have no credibility because of how they see me? I think about that moment so frequently. And I, I'm wondering if you have, we're, we're kind of talking from the perspective of what newsmakers and media producers and journalists, what, what responsibilities they have to better support the particular needs of their audiences. But I'm wondering if, if you have recommendations for how people in different marginalized communities might be able to, to get some empowerment. How do disempowered constituencies work to get media just more leveraged and more responsive to their particular needs? I mean, obviously, I work in independent and community media, so our approach is to make our own media, and that's sort of the opportunity that we give people. Like, listen, you know, you are not being represented. Your stories are not being told right, 
And I don't know if we can change that with the current corporate media structure, but we can provide alternatives and we can tell our own stories. I think now more than ever, there is an effort towards community engagement and collaborative journalism. And you're seeing a lot of that here locally, where um, there are other institutions like foundations and universities who are trying to bring uh, journalists together across platforms to have these important conversations. It's going to take some time. In the community radio movement and, you know, even like public access TV, we couldn't wait any longer for them to do it. So part of what we were doing is taking the airwaves back and putting the media back into people's hands. And, you know, where I work now, you know, before we had a radio station, there was a real void on the airwaves in terms of having a diversity of voices. Now there's five new stations. At my station, there's over 80 producers. There's over 60 programs. And we're doing it ourselves. We're telling our own stories. We're creating another narrative. We're promoting an alternative. But I would also say, you know, we can't let up the pressure and accountability of those other sources of media and that we should continue to try to engage journalists and institutions and demand better coverage and accountability. I also think that like community media is very interested in in working with artists and telling these stories through other ways, through music, through poetry, through film, through the performing arts. And we've had so much success and interest when we partner with arts organizations and when we go to festivals out in the community and when we do local music concerts and open mics. I mean, not everything is, you know, told through a news story. Like, that's not appealing to everybody. And so finding ways to kind of, you know, use the arts as a, as a vehicle uh, to deliver these messages using satire and, and comedy, I think those are also super effective tools. And I see just so much opportunity in being able to work together, again, to just, you know, provide an alternative to what's currently being offered. Yes, definitely. I hope so. I think that there's there's a really important educational component, that there's there are important opportunities for community convenings and trainings and those sorts of things. But I also feel that when people are engaging with some kind of artistic experience, whether that's a performance or a piece of literature, poetry, or comedy or visual art, it hits us in a different way way. And one of the reasons this topic feels so relevant to my artistic practice right now is that I think for the most part, like we were saying earlier, a lot of us just kind of take for granted the particular spheres and bubbles of media that we live in. I'm wondering if you think there's anything we can do to encourage people in our lives and our and our communities to think more critically about the narrowness or breadth of media that they're engaging with? Are there things we can do to to get people to feel more enthusiastic about making a broader diversity of media part of the ways that they engage with and reflect around information? Right. So if I am watching a really good series on Netflix and I'm super excited about it, I'm pretty likely to tell a friend and say, oh my gosh, I just watched this. I binge watched it over the weekend. It was awesome. You got to check it out too. And I think word of mouth marketing is probably like the most effective, right? If I see a show and it was 
amazing. And I say, you have to check out this band. They're so good. I might make them a playlist or send them a link. Right. And so that's what I do with, with people who I think need to maybe change your media diet. I recommend something that I think is really good and might be really helpful. And so I often share my own show, People Power, uh, but I share things like Democracy Now! or The Daily Show or the sites like The Intercept. Like, you know, I, I make those recommendations along with, you know, here's a great recipe for baked potato soup, right? So it's like we're always kind of like making these recommendations and doing word of mouth things. So I really encourage people to change their media diet, to try new sites, to try new people and mix it up a little bit, right? Like don't stay watching the same show or be on the same newspaper site. With my students at Temple, you know, part of their assignment every week is that they have to look at international news stories and they have to figure out what happened by using a diversity of sources. And their groups, they they begin to understand the different ways Uh, certain countries cover things or media outlets cover things. And they'll say, oh, well, this media outlet said this, but this other outlet said this. And so they begin to learn like, oh, okay, like I can't just look at one site in order to get the story. I got to have a couple sources. And so that's what I recommend we do, you know, share those things that we think are effective and are, are truthful and would be good sources of information. I also think that we're in this culture of like shaming people online. And I think that if someone shares a misinformation or like a meme or like something that's not really true or very biased, I think the best thing to do is have a private conversation with somebody and not shame them, but understand where did you get that information? Why, why did you think to share it? Like, hey, did you know, like, here's another piece of information. Because this, like, shaming of people who, like, really don't know and they're not really intentionally trying to cause harm, you know, that really causes people to get upset and disengage. And so what we want to do is have a, have a conversation, a dialogue about it in a way that's helpful and not like making somebody feel bad because they may not be as media literate as you. Like I do think that people need to chill out a little bit. Like, you know, if my mom shares a meme, like I'm really like, Hey mom, where'd you, where'd you get that? And so again, you know, just like giving people the benefit of the doubt, I think goes a long way. So again, those are my two things, you know, share the things with people that you think will help them and keep doing it over time. And also, you know, people do share misinformation, call them on it, but do it in a way that is is not going to cause them to like unfriend you or block you. I think both of the points you're making are so important. And I kind of want to open them up in a little bit of a particular direction. I, I think that we can all always become more media literate and we can all be expanding our media diet. You know, we, we can all be doing that. And what you're saying about just how important the person-to-person relationship is, that feels so essential. What you're also saying about exercising a little more gentleness in directing people to think about why they share or believe in something, that feels so important. And it feels like we're we're just opening into a question that I, you know, I don't think that we can answer right now, but it feels like an important ongoing question, which is how can we reach people who are maybe living in a totally oppositional 
realm of media? How do we get people who are only consuming Breitbart and Infowars and Fox News, for example, to engage with something with a little more breadth? That question feels challenging, but also really important. And I personally want to be thinking about how to approach that in a way that's not necessarily antagonistic or shame-driven. I'm curious to know what you think about that. Well, I think, you know, it's going to be hard to reach those people. And I'm not sure if they're ready to listen to somebody like me. But I do think that offering these free programs, having community forums, having these opportunities um, to to connect in, in real life, to be able to share things. I mean, there's been plenty of, of times where I've connected with people that were on opposite sides of the political spectrum, but maybe we were at a restaurant together or sitting at a bar together having a beer. And I think just try to be open-minded of people that are different from you. And don't isolate yourself into silos where you're not going to come across a variety of different people. Like get out to different cultural events, try things outside of your neighborhood, go to things that might challenge your perspective on things, if not just to listen. And I think that's the main thing is just to get out of your own box, right? Like you can't expect people to get out of theirs if you don't get out of yours. Philly has so many events like all around the year where there's a diversity of people and you never know who you might be talking to. So just be kind, right? Like kindness goes a long way. And I think people are more willing to listen to you or have compassion for you if you show kindness, compassion, and love. And I think like at the root of all of my activism and everything that I do is just having love for our neighbors, our fellow people. And even though somebody might tune into those things, it doesn't mean that they might be disrespectful to me in real life. And we potentially could have a really great conversation that could change both of us. So try to keep an open mind, but also, you know, like if you feel that you're going to be harmed or experience some type of harassment, then do what you need to do for, to step away from that situation as well. Like, especially people of color, right? Like, I think people of privilege, you know, if you have education, if you have money, if you are white, like, you know, there's lots of privileges, like use that privilege to reach those people for, for those who are marginalized and would not be able to like navigate those spaces in the same way. Definitely. Vanessa, it's been so good to talk with you. I hope that we can talk more another time. Yes, I look forward to your event. And I hope that we could have more conversations like this between artists and activists, because I think that we have uh, a lot to share and and a lot to learn from one another. Agreed, agreed. So Legal Tender is April 16th through 18th at Fringe Arts. Vanessa, is there any, are there any upcoming events or programs that you want to share with folks? Well, I do want to advocate for people who are interested in anything that I said to visit PhillyCam. We have a website, phillycam.org, and we teach people how to make media. And we have a television station and a community radio station and lots of classes. And I think that if you're somebody who has a story and you want to tell it, but just don't know how, we have the space uh, and the means for you to do that. 
So it is a, is an open door for everybody who, who wants to do something creative and have an impact on their community. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Happy Hour on the Fringe. On April 16th through 18th, you can join us for Legal Tender by Anti-Gravity Performance Project. In this trance-induced travelogue, drawing from extensive conversations around our eroding news and media environments, we follow poet Kyle DeCuyan through psychic terrain and nightlife, family history, and local communities as he looks into the places where fact, opinion, and falsehood settle in us subconsciously. You can visit our website, www.fringearts.com, for tickets. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram, and download the Fringe Arts app.